You're listening to DraftKings Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Last week, we talked about how Game 6 Clay is a myth. Yeah. But people were in my mentions being like, Game 6 Clay, whether he actually scores a lot or not, it's a vibe. It's a vibe. That's why you analytics people are killing the game. And now I'm starting to understand, it's not about Game 6 Clay. I think it really is about Parade 4 Clay. Oh, boy. Parade 4 Clay. That's the final <laughs> form. You thought Super Saiyan was the level, and then there's... Another level to Super Saiyan. This guy, the vibes are very immaculate with Clay Thompson, Parade 4. Mace, can you run through the itinerary for Clay Thompson during this parade route day? So you wake up, you take your dog Rocco for a walk, then you hop in your boat, <laughs> yeah. as one does. You take a quick sail across the bay, quick jaunt. While streaming on IG Live, right? You hop on IG Live. And your hat gets blown off because you're going so fast. And you yell, my hat! <laughs> my hat! No! <laughs> I lost my hat! Not just any hat, right? The championship hat. So what do you do? You get your backup hat, a San Francisco captain's hat, <laughs> and you make it to the parade. Which, by the way, is more on brand for Clay at this point. That captain's hat that he's worn so many times as he boats to work. I always find that very odd about Clay, but also very on brand. That he boats to work. <laughs> no, I did actually take the boat in today because it was a perfect glassy day on the water. It's funny because I lost my championship hat in the wind. <laughs> oh, no. I do not condone littering, and I tried to find her, but she's... Now in the, she's one with the ocean, unfortunately. And uh, that's why I had the captain's hat on, because I lost the, chi the, the finals hat. So he gets to the actual parade, and he starts his other antics. He's doing a Michael Jackson dance. He's tripping over a raised 
streetcar track and stumbling about 15 feet to knock down Kyle Lowry or Marcus Smart, whoever was there to take a charge. She thanked him for it. She was very grateful for that opportunity. (laughs) He paid tribute to shirtless legend J.R. Smith by chugging Hennessy and shouting, anything is possible. He lost his ring. (laughs) He lost his championship ring. He dropped it on the ground and was looking for it for a while. Hold on. I didn't see this part. He lost his ring? That's what I'm saying. I mean, there's so much going on. It's hard to keep track. Great for Clay. Every so once in a while, you got to remind yourself. You got to remind yourself. You got to fall. That's what we do. We win. Winners win. They'll never understand it. They'll try to quantify it. They'll try to make it about points. Winners win. That's what we do. We don't want to hear it no more. Shut up. Just so you know, when it's over, shut up. And the mic drops. My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there. But so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but- all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Welcome to Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstroh, and I am joined by my Illuminarmy five-star generals, Amin El-Hassan and producer Anthony Mays. We've got lots to get into on this week's episode of Basketball Illuminati. But before we get into all the stuff that we're going to talk about, I want you to talk to us, basketballilluminati at gmail.com. Hit us up with any tips. We got lots of emails from y'all, a lot of good information, a lot of good intel that you want us to talk about. Some things that you see that aren't quite right that you want us to spotlight on this show. Also, we got some new merch. Got a new hat. I'm looking at it right now. Maze, can you tell us about that hat you're wearing? Oh my God, it's beautiful. Oh yes, it's a Heather Gray with the white outline the Illuminati pyramid with the basketball inside of it by our very own Angel Resto. It's clean, folks. Fits like a dream. So if you go to worldofsui.com, you can go click on the merch and find our hats, our hoodies, our t-shirts. Amin, you've been rocking it all finals long. People are asking you about it, right? Always, always. It's such a beautiful looking shirt. I got two. I got the standard basketball Illuminati logo with the black lettering on it. And then I've got another one where it's a white t-shirt with just the pyramid in black on it 
look, it's a stylish looking shirt. It's a cool looking shirt. The colors pop. You're going to get questions about it. It's not like, oh, listen to my podcast. It's not a nerdy shirt. This is a cool shirt. Yeah. Although you're not a hat guy, I think this hat will make you a hat guy. That's how good it looks. Just don't lose it in the ocean, folks. I lost my hat. We're going to talk to Jake Fisher from Bleacher Report. We've actually cited him, all the truth telling that he's done out in the media He has an interesting story, his rise in the basketball media, speaking truths and getting the real information out there. He's written a book called Built to Lose. He's one of the best out there. We're going to talk to him later in the show for our Truth Tellers segment. I also did some of my own research and not the mean kind of research, just a little bit more wholesome. Let's title it Tom Did His Own Research. Does that sound good to you guys? I like that. Oh boy, the season is over. It's time for the next season. We'll talk to Jake Fisher. We'll do some research, but first. You are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haberstroh and Amin El Hassan. Oh boy. Kai, Kai, Kai. Okay. Or is it okay? Because Kyrie Irving's here. Monday morning, bright and early, I got a text message from one Tom Haberstrow that says, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone wants to know, what is Kyrie tweeting about? Mm. Kicking off the week, 9.15 a.m. Eastern on Monday after the finals, Shams Charania from The Athletic slash Stadium reported that there is an impasse. Love a good impasse. With Kyrie Irving and the Brooklyn Nets. And he is threatening, essentially. He's going to hit the free agency market and consider going and being a free agent, turning down his player option. Some other suitors out there, maybe the Clippers, maybe the Lakers, maybe the Knicks will be after me. Oh, wait, sorry. I wasn't saying Kyrie was saying all this. This is Shams yeah. reporting this. I'm, I'm not accusing anything here, right, I mean, No, no. Hey, man, who are we to believe if not our most sacred institution, the press, the media? And of course, these news stories always come out because of excellent digging and not because people tend to leak things. Mm, 9.15 a.m. on a Monday, right before the draft. And as you know, draft night, a lot of fireworks on draft night. Lots of stuff goes down NBA draft night. Let me paint a picture for the listeners, guys. Imagine you're an NBA player. You want to get your side of the story out there, but you can't just call out there and say it, right? Because then there's all types of repercussions for saying it. We saw that with Anthony Davis a few years back saying there were, you know, a bunch of teams that he'd rather play for rather than the New Orleans Pelicans. And he got fined as a result. So what do you do? How do you get that vibe out there? How do you let teams know prior to your opting out that if you're interested, maybe I'm interested too? You do the well-positioned leak. You give the information to a newsbreaker. The newsbreaker, citing the confidentiality of the sources, will never out you as being the one who has given that information. That information, which again, now very publicly frames you in a certain light. I'm not suggesting that's what happened right here with Kyrie Irving and Sham Sharania and whoever else is involved. I'm merely positing that this is a tactic that is done time and time again in our fair league. The reporter will never leak the name of the leaker. No. Is what you're saying. And the reporter has no incentive to. What does it matter? All that matters is that the reporter is being ethical and is actually reporting something that was told to him. And that's what Shams and Chris Haynes and 
our guest coming up soon, Jake Fisher. These guys all are above the board. They're super professional. They get their information. They break their information. I don't need to know who told them because I believe that someone of credibility told them. That's all I need to know. And by virtue of who they are, I believe that. Having said that, that doesn't mean that the one providing the information to them is doing it with the most altruistic intentions in mind. Mm, Don't say, I mean, speaking of super professional, (laughs) at 10.24 a.m. Eastern, Mm -hmm. Kyrie tweeted a gif of Brother Muzone, a professional killer from one of the greatest shows of all time, The Wire. Yeah. And we did some digging here at Basketball Illuminati. This got our attention. Wait a second. Anthony Mays, did you do your own research? I sure did, I mean. Brother Mizone is from The Wire. And for those who have not watched The Wire, or if you have intentions to watch The Wire and don't want to know the plot lines. Spoiler alert for The Wire, a show that came out 20 years ago, yes. Yeah, and I feel like if you haven't watched The Wire and you're an NBA fan, that Venn diagram doesn't have a lot of overlap, right? So just a heads up here, we're going to give away lots of stuff on The Wire. Okay, now let's get into it. Mays, why would Kyrie choose this particular character and this particular scene an hour after Shams puts out that report. I'm so glad you asked, Tom. You might think, oh, it's just Brother Muzon laughing. No. Let's roll the tape. Here's the scene. What happened to all them towers? Slow train coming. Huh? Reform, Lamont. Reform. Kyrie Irving did not choose Brother Mazone just because he wore a bow tie. That is not the reason. No. In fact, he sees a lot of himself in Brother Mazone. So let's unpack the plot of the wire a little bit here. Stringer Bell believed that Omar would take on Muzone as a target if he believed that he was responsible for murdering his boyfriend, Brandon. Stringer was right. And Omar confronted Muzone, shooting him in the abdomen and severely wounding him. Muzone later returned to Baltimore, tracked Omar down, and suggested they team up to kill Stringer Bell. Wait, because Brother Muzone realized that he was allies with Omar. Our powers combined, we can take revenge out on Stringer Bell. They both realized, Tom... That they were being used. Used. Mm. They were pawns. They were pawns in this game. What about them little bald-headed bitches right there? All right, these right here, these are the pawns. They like the soldiers. They move like this, one space forward only, except when they fight. And it's like, like this. And they like the front lines. They be out in the field. So how do you get to be the king? It ain't like that. See, the king, stay the king. Alright? Everything stay who he is. Except for the pawns. Now for pawn, made it all the way down to the other dude's side. You get to be queen. And like I said, the queen ain't no bitch. She got all the moves. Alright, so if I make it to the other end, I win. If you catch the other dude's king and trap it, then you win. Alright, but if I make it to the end. I'm top dog. Nah, yo, it ain't like that. Look, the pawns, man, in the game, they get capped quick. They be out the game early. 
Unless they some smart ass pawns. So if Kyrie is brother Muzone, mm-hmm. who's Stringer Bell? I think I have an idea. Who would want to take out Kyrie? Well, that's the Nets, right? They're trying to create this narrative out there that he's not all the way in. He's unreliable. Why are we paying him the max when he's going to show up for half the season and then create all these headaches? That's not a guy that I want to sign for a max deal. No, we need to get this guy out of here. We don't want to deal with this anymore. Let me submit to you then. That would make Omar, who was used by Stringer Bell to attempt to carry out an assassination of Muzon, only to then team with Muzon and go hit back at Stringer. I guess in this analogy, if you're telling me Muzon is Kyrie and the Nets are Stringer, (laughs) that would make the media Omar Little. They were used to character assassinate Kyrie Irving at first. How can you pay this guy? He's so unreliable and all this stuff. But what Kyrie has now done, or his camp has done, by leaking, we suspect, to Sham Sharania, perhaps possible alternate plans that don't involve the Brooklyn Nets, he's now using the media, teaming up with the media, to put pressure on the Nets. I like this analogy a lot, guys. And like any good Illuminarmy soldier, Whether you're a general like us or you're a private, just listen to this podcast for the first time. You understand that when it comes to this NBA thing, particularly this season that we're entering now, transaction season, nothing is what it appears and nothing is by accident. Nothing just happens. Everything is coordinated and curated very carefully to create the exact kind of conditions that the parties seeking to control want to influence and bring about. Brilliant. So the idea of Kyrie being this childish, unreliable space cadet, he's showing us that he is actually Brother Mazone. Mm-hmm. A trained hooper. Trained hooper. A contract hooper. From New York. From New York. Now, when Omar shoots Brother Mazone under the impression that he was responsible for torturing and murdering Omar's boyfriend, You see Brother Mazone very calmly saying, that's not my style. You know I'm more buttoned up than that, essentially. Mm. Maybe we have Kyrie all wrong. He is very deliberate. And every step that he takes has been well thought out. Mm. And he's not flippant. He's not uncontrollable and unreliable. Everything is coordinated. And he's got a larger process to carry out. Tom, sorry, could you repeat that? Because I couldn't see your face behind the massive billowing clouds of sage smoke Mm. that you've got going on over there. I was saying that Kyrie Irving is a lot more calculated and a lot more sophisticated than we think, much like Brother Mazone. But in this scene, Brother Mazone is looking at what and smiling and what is the backdrop of this scene? Why this particular video clip? That's just it, Tom. Kyrie is very deliberate, much like Brother Mazone. He's careful and he chose this clip Not only because he identifies with this character, but because of the context of the scene. So what's happening in this scene? Season three of The Wire reflects on the nature of reform and reformers. Whether there is any possibility that political processes, long calcified, can mitigate against the forces currently arrayed against individuals, and its consequences may not be immediately visible on the surface. 
Brother Mazzone's remarks center on the empty political promises of reform in Baltimore marked by the collapse of the towers. So Kyrie is saying two things, that he is fighting against the long calcified dynamics of ownership and players, oh, and that the promises of reform by the Nets organization are hollow and erroneous. Erroneous! Which might seem like a contradiction, but that's because your third eye isn't open. Erroneous on all counts, I mean. As Maze is saying this, all I'm imagining in my mind is Charlie Kelly on Always Sunny with a corkboard behind them, <laughs> strings attached to different pictures, questioning Pepe Silvia, Pepe Silvia. These promises are empty, much like that office, which is a goddamn ghost town. So I guess the Nets here represent the entity that needs reformation, or at least the idea of they think they can reform the athletes. But in fact, Kyrie Irving is saying, uh-uh, I got the power in this relationship. You don't think I've thought this through? What are you going to do without me? He's saying to the Nets. He's going to get the media to carry out that message is what are the Nets going to do if they don't offer him an extension or give him his money? Or give him his money with strings attached that are unreasonable or untenable for him. It is quite the question, quite the conundrum. What is the contract that you can offer to Kyrie that isn't going to cause him to walk away from the negotiating table? And the way I see it, there's only one, and that's to have every last dollar guaranteed without any string attached. It's never going to happen. Some might say he wants Stringer out of the picture. Wow. Ring that bell, I mean. I guess the question is, where does it go from here? Well, Tom, that's just it. It's already happening. He threw that match over his shoulder, and the internet is aflame with Russell Westbrook for Kyrie Irving, imaginary trades. And what if we throw Ben Simmons and Anthony Davis into that as well? And what if we send him to the Clippers? And oh my God, if they had Kyrie Irving and Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, that's a lock to win the title. Oh my God. It's already working. Yesterday's price is not today's price. When I say I'm, I'm here with Kev, I think that it really entails us you know, managing this franchise together alongside Joe and, and Sean. And I think we just got to make some moves this offseason, really talk about it and um, really be intentional about what we're building. Reform. Yesterday's price is not today's price. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You all think I'm licked. Well, I'm not licked. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. 
There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity in the gray lie not in the truth, but what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man, you can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. Jake Fisher from BR, truth teller in waiting. We've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. We probably cited your name on this podcast more than anybody because of your intrepid reporting way ahead of the curve on a bunch of stories in the NBA, some of the biggest stories in the NBA. Welcome to Illuminati. Thank you. It truly is an honor to be here for two reasons. One, I'm a big fan of the show. And two, I'm going to shout out my high school fantasy football group chat, which has... A ton of big fans of this show. They are pretty pumped that I'm doing this. So thank you guys for having me. Oh, man. That's awesome. <laughs> you got fantasy football fans? You do. There are also delusional Sixers fans who oh. text the group every week about wanting Sam Cassell to be the head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. So <laughs> not to say that it would be delusional for him. I'm just already on the defense of the aggregation. But we're good. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Aggregators. Mount up. I want to start there because you came up through Liberty Ballers, right? I did. Writing about the Sixers. And then you ended up a few short years later writing a book about being a reporter in the league and covering the tanking era, principally a lot of the stuff coming from Sam Hinkie and the trust the process era. And I just want people to get a little backdrop on how Jake Fisher became one of the prominent NBA reporters. Thank you for that. So I was interning. I interned for Slam Magazine as a freshman in college, the summer after that freshman year, while like Sam Hinkie took over in Philly and had that draft night where he traded Drew Holiday and ended up making deals all the way down through the second round, right? And that was coinciding with my time at Liberty Ballers. And from Slam, I interned at SI and I was working at Sports Illustrated for four or five years until the company got purchased and half the employees were let go. <laughs> In that time period, I was fortunate that I had already started to want to work on something about the hanky process years because you know it wasn't just Sam and Philly. I was in school in Boston where Danny Ainge traded Paul Pierce and KG away from the Celtics the very same night that the Sixers did the Drew Holiday trade. They were tied to Orlando from that Dwight Howard-Andre 14 deal where the Magic were rebuilding seemed like a lot of teams, a lot of people in the league were trying to copy OKC's model, which is ironic where we're at today, <laughs> of tanking and trying to draft a bunch of superstars and that being your clearest path to getting to a real title conversation. So through a lot of conversations working on that book, I reported that for two, three years. And a lot of those stories, a lot of those interviews came through working on stories for Sports Illustrated. I used to do a bunch of fun personality profiles and trend stories like I got coffee with Mike D'Antoni at Starbucks because I was told he was obsessed with Starbucks. <laughs> I did a story with Miles Turner about him being like a Lego fiend and other just like random things that I got to meet people. Kids ask me all the time now on email and DM like, how do you become a newsbreaker? Like I tell them, don't try to become a newsbreaker. I got, I was a feature writer who got laid off and then Bleacher Report said, hey, we need you to do this job if you want to keep working for us. 
Like I didn't want to do this. And I went to people in the league who I knew January 2021 and said, hey, this is kind of the only way I can make money covering basketball right now. Mm. Can I call you more often than I usually do and talk shop? And they were like, yeah. So it's kind of built from there. Jake, have you seen the Miles Turner full-size 100,000 Lego piece version of himself as Darth Vader. <laughs> no, uh, I have not seen that. I do still to this day have on my phone a time-lapse video of him making a bunch of Lego shit. I mean, this guy is obsessed with Legos. It's really, really cool that this millionaire NBA athlete in today's day, fans love to comment on what these guys are doing so much. That sounds like a lovely thing. And one of the funniest details about it is that his fingers are so big. There are certain things where he can't slide a piece in. Oh, wow. And like his boy who lives with him has to go and put certain pieces. It's amazing. It's awesome. He's got a Lego a Lego guy. He's a role player. He's a real brickhead. Is that what they call him? Brickheads? Is that the nomenclature? That's what I know according to Ben Golliver and Andrew Sharp. That is apparently what they're called. <laughs> I love those lifestyle stories. I've done a few like Kyrie Irving being vegan. Did you do one on Chris Bosch liking beer? Yeah. Tom, I actually went vegan for like nine months after that story. Because there are so many people who I'm hearing, oh, everyone, everyone went vegan this summer. They all lost all this weight. Yeah. And then I read your story. I was like, you know what? I'm a fat piece of shit right now. I should try to change my habits. And for like nine months, I did. It had a legit direct impact on my life. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk Kyrie in a little bit, but I wanted to get your take on what's going to happen with the Sixers and your fantasy football group of friends. <laughs> they want Sam Cassell, but as you've listened on this podcast, the Daryl Morey, basically Houston Rockets East, that whole thing that the the organization has done, remaking the organization to be like the Houston Rockets of old, where do you see the James Harden free agency and the whole Mike D'Antoni name floating around and Doc Rivers, the standoff, the game of chicken with Daramori. How do you see this playing out over the next couple of weeks? It's definitely something people keep wanting to talk about. Mike D'Antoni apparently is going to interview with Charlotte and he was apparently a finalist for that job. And when I talked to people around the Sixers for that story I did last week about James Harden, and as I've heard from them throughout the last couple of months, It does seem like Doc Rivers is going to be the head coach there. And remember, the second he got let go in Los Angeles, Philly flew him in on a private jet and took him out to dinner and they gave him this super lucrative deal. Ownership does not seem very intent on changing direction there anytime soon. Sure, there's been a ton of talk around the league about, oh, maybe Daryl doesn't really prefer Doc to be his coach or just in general, right? Whenever a executive gets hired after the head coach, alarm bells start to go off. Oh, this wasn't the guy he hired. Does that signal something? It so far hasn't seemed like it will anytime soon. To your point about Rockets East, yeah. I mean, I've definitely been told that Joel Embiid's at least been made aware of that or at least is aware of that. I mean, he's a super cerebral NBA player, both on and off the court, I've been told. So has that at least raised antennas to keep using metaphors amongst non-Rockets East people who are in Philly? I think so. But I don't think anything dramatic really is going to come from this offseason. I think Harden will return. I think the biggest shakeup we could see is Tobias Harris heading out the door. How would you describe what Joel Embiid did during the conference finals where he mused that the Miami Heat need another star to help Jimmy? Is that him rattling... 
Miami's cage? Is that him rattling his own team's cage? Or is that him just rattling all of our cages? I think all the above. (laughs) You know, when LeBron posts something, right, everyone likes to try to read what the tea leaves are because everything is calculated there. He is someone who has really made exacted moves throughout his career, right? Both when he says things, when he tweets things, when he Instagrams things. Joel Embiid's the same way. I mean, he dropped the RIP Bozo meme the second Ben Simmons gets dealt at the deadline, right? When he's tweeting something like that, which has obviously massive ripple effects, ramifications, what have you, cage rattlings, like you said, he knows what he's doing. And I think even if there isn't a specific target, he's happy to hit any target he can because he does want to rattle cages and make people know that he knows how to rattle the cages. Speaking of decrypting tweets, Jake, we have to ask you about our previous segment, Monday morning, Kyrie Irving, the brother Muzone GIF. (laughs) What did it mean to you? Well, first, I'm now filing you away as someone who says GIF and not GIF. I said it earlier in the episode and I had to commit to consistency. Mm -hmm. I still don't know where I stand on the debate. I don't know where I stand either, but whenever someone says it, I file it away. As a fan of The Wire, and as someone I spoke to about Kyrie's whole situation yesterday also said, my thought on that was Kyrie talks about people are pawns in the media and what have you. Him reacting to a report that in theory would benefit his side of the negotiations is very pawn of the media-like. That was my reaction to that tweet. If you're asking for me to be a truth teller on the Illuminati podcast. Jake, was he a pawn of the media or was the media a pawn of his? Because as we know, (laughs) when these stories come out and they seem to very much favor one side over the other, chances are the source for such story or such information is probably the person that these stories are about. There is a framing that occurs when these stories come out that gives you a hint who did the leaking. As always, we always respect the work of the newsbreakers. You guys do a tough job, and it's a 24-7 job. Of course, there is an element of uh, mutual beneficial vibes from the newsbreaker and the news source provider. The question is, Jake Fisher, have you ever felt like a source was using you as a leverage play? Yeah. Well, I have felt when people have been trying to. Oh, see that? You hear that, guys? Yeah. They tried it. They were not successful. Whenever something like that has occurred, and I'll be very candid in saying this last season, I can only think of two examples off the top of my head. I don't get leaked anything. A lot of the times when I call people, they will call people who would know because there's in these high stake things, there's a lot of people who get word secondhand and then tell me and then I'm able to work my way back up the food chain and call the principal actors. Like a lot of situations, the principal actors are just not going to talk to certain people in the media. But whenever I have gotten a call saying, hey, here's a nice tip. I would really like you to write this story. I always tell them, well, I hope you understand. I need to then make a bunch more calls on this. I think a lot of people in our business use the word source as a way to mislead fans on who their source would be in terms of trying to make something potentially seem more ironclad, or maybe they're of the assumption that that information is more solid than it would be. I definitely, through the lens of the true journalism institutions of the (laughs) United States of America that I learned that, I went to Northeastern, use anonymous sourcing to protect people who shouldn't be talking to you 
so it doesn't get them fired mm-hmm. or ruin a relationship with someone. You know, if someone who's very close to James Harden, for example, is telling me that James Harden wants out of Brooklyn, but maybe they don't want James Harden to know that they're telling me that, but they think it's in best interest of everyone involved and particularly James Harden to tell me that to get the ball rolling. I'm going to make sure that James Harden still wants to be friends with that person, etc. So to answer your question, yeah, I'm always considering what people are telling me and why, but I also feel like I try to send back as much like, hey, like my agenda here is to also find the truth and the full story. And I'm not just going to take what your side of it is. Music to my ears. Yeah, it used to be that while we were at ESPN, you had to get two sources on everything before you went public. Mark Stein would be late to a story, quote unquote, but he had the information, Mm -hmm. but he had to find a second source to go public with it. And that dynamic has changed where you go straight to Twitter. And if you get information, even from one source, you just got to get it out there. And that dynamic has changed over the years, which is predating Jake Fisher's reign as a national reporter. (laughs) And this is exactly this is how the corrupt and dissolve the institutions from beneath us, the erosion of integrity in journalism. As they chase clicks and they chase being first on Twitter by seconds even, this is all part of the plan to make you doubt what you hear. (laughs) Is it real? Is this news accurate? Is it falsified? Is it flimsy? And so that's why we need people like Jake Fisher, truth tellers, to help the public differentiate between what's real and what is just propaganda, ladies and gentlemen? What's really interesting, and I asked this question for a project I'm working on to a sports law friend of mine, is that people are working for their employers at the end of the day. But my approach has always been that my allegiance is to the fans more than anything. I like to just be a 31st observer, like a 31st front office of the league and bring forward what people in the league are talking about. But it has been interesting to see how people in the league, not to call people out, but they're kind of guilty. Like Mark Cuban, uh, obvious example, flat out denied my report that the Mavericks were considering moving Kristaps Porzingis. People jump all over that. Bad reporting, fake news, blah, blah, blah. How did that go down again? So you reported on BR? Yeah, I think I actually did it like a year ahead of time. I first put it last year's trade deadline and there wasn't a deal out there. That made sense. And then this year I tweeted out because I just heard it so loud the night before the deadline that Toronto was really talking to Dallas about Chris Stapps. And I'm not scheduled to write today. If this goes down and I heard it so loud, I'm going to be pretty annoyed. So I was like, let's put it out there. And then Toronto instead decided to go with that young deal. But the Mavs did move Chris Stapps for Zingas. And I do believe that was the only report out there to suggest that he was ultimately available. Cubes. <laughs> did he tweet that out? Did he take a shot at you on Twitter or was that on air somewhere? He definitely did like a local radio, <laughs> local newspaper. We were not considering Kristaps by any means. And lo and behold, I mean, it was a year later, but they definitely were talking about Because also a part of my job, I think, is collecting intel from like 18 months ago. Last year's trade deadline influences the next year's trade deadline or influences trades that can happen in free agency. Right. If some guy is just available for conversation in February 2021, and then they're actively shopping him at the trade deadline the next year, to me, that's an interesting trend line to follow. Yeah. All these plants start as seeds. Exactly. And seeds of discontent mm. grow into major situations. Trees. And then all of a sudden, you've got a trade on your hands. you got forests. <laughs> if you're paying attention, like Jake 
You see these things ahead of time. That's the whole thing, right? If you're someone who lives day to day, looking over the bridge of your nose, everything seems random. Everything seems isolated and unrelated. But the reality is when you take a step back and you take inventory of the entire picture from beginning to end, it all starts to make sense. Now, Jake, has anyone ever apologized to you? for calling your reporting faulty maybe not cuban but has anyone ever said hey man you had it but i just couldn't have you out there you know having that story no i've had people not apologize (laughs) and i've had people double down yeah double down but also of late i've had people compliment me on things that they didn't want to get out which has been funny too because that didn't used to happen. Usually they would like ignore it or not really acknowledge it. And now to have like, oh, good work on that one has been nice. <laughs> the one I think about, I don't think about the Cuban one. I think about the Nets one where you're like, yo, Harden wants out. Oh, yeah. Well, he straight up said, no, I don't want to leave. <laughs> yeah. And Steve Nash was like, well, this is the first I've heard of it. <laughs> and kudos to them. I always say that's their job. Mm-hmm. Their job is to not acknowledge the bald truth until it becomes an actual apparent truth. And of course, obviously we know soon thereafter, Jim Harden was traded, traded to Philadelphia. Was that not a situation where you got at least a kind of an acknowledgement of like, you had it, man, you got us. I will say that as the dust was settling from that situation, we all had our brooms out and we were rushing it away together. There were more conversations that were had and the curtains were pulled back a little bit more. And there was some like, oh, yeah, well, when you reported that, we were doing this. Mm. And when you reported that, we were like, oh, okay, well, now we have to do this. So that definitely did happen. And I will say also to the Steve Nash point, to keep our third eye open as a tip to our listeners, the coaches, the number one public facing, public speaking figure in the organization. Mm -hmm. And that is a very interesting dynamic in all of this being that see certain executives never talk and their coaches out there three times a day yeah. talking at shoot around in the afternoon post game <coughs> Leon Rose <coughs> and a lot of messages that are needing to be said publicly are delivered through that channel or sometimes the message doesn't get delivered as people up top might want it to be because they're not the one delivering it it's a very interesting dynamic and it's honestly a huge percentage of the head coach's responsibility that I don't think fans consider when they're yelling about adjustments and is this guy a good leader of men type of stuff. Sometimes is this guy enough of a politician Ah. to be such a public figure is a really big factor. Ass on, ass off is what you're saying? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because when I look at the 76ers situation, I truly wonder, what does James Harden want? I mean, is it just money, the most money, or is it status? Is it playing for Mike D'Antoni again? What is it that you think James Harden ultimately wants out of a partnership with the 76ers? I think James Harden, from all my conversations, it sounds like he does want to get paid, but he does want to be in a winning situation. Winning a title is something that, I mean, I think that was ultimately the driving factor that really drove him to wanting out of Brooklyn too, being that. Obviously, Kyrie came back, but like he looked around to his left and saw KD was hurt with his knee. He looked to his right and saw Kyrie was willing to not play home games in the playoffs if that's what it was going to take to try to win a title where Kyrie already has a ring. KD's got two. He doesn't have one. So he looked at Philly and saw Embiid playing at this MVP level and was like, that guy in that situation with Daryl Morey is probably my best bet at winning a title. I do think that's very high on his priority list right now in the next couple of years of his career. There's definitely word, I'll say, around the league that maybe long, long term, that might not be 
at the top of his list. But for now, if he were to win a ring in Philly, his next deal could be a big money situation somewhere else, let's say. But right now, it does really seem like he wants to be in Philly to win a title next to Joel Embiid. What should the Illumin Army out there expect for the draft night? Not necessarily who's going number one, but any other moves that you're monitoring. There's going to be a ton of trades. And whether they're actually of star impact players like the John Collinses, the Rudy Gobert's, the Jeremy Grants of the world remains to be seen. I've been saying this a lot on my shows on Colin that a lot of these deals are kind of like dominoes and they're all being held up by each other. Like Atlanta can't trade for Rudy Gobert and Jeremy Grant <laughs> and go sign and trade DeAndre Ayton, right? So I am curious to see how that Portland, Utah, Detroit, Atlanta vortex is going to actually shake out. There's going to be a ton of trades in the second round too at the top. This might be a draft from like 20 to 40 where every team on the clock is actually not the team on the clock and the caps are all going to be incorrect and it's going to have funny pictures in the future. In terms of something to really keep your eye open for, (laughs) I am really curious if the top three is going to go as everyone is expecting it. Not to say that it's not going to be the big three, but everyone is just too content. It very could just go Jabari, Chet, Paolo in some order, right? But if Paolo goes to two, I think that would be a really fun ripple effect to see what Houston does at three. Yeah. If someone breaks from the green and doesn't go, it's a possibility people are still talking about that no one's really fully prepared for. Like They're preparing for it. But everyone's been working on the assumption it's those three guys. So if it doesn't happen, something could break in a different direction than we're all expecting. Who's most likely to be in the same uniform that they had last season? Damian Lillard, Kyrie Irving, or Bradley Beal? I'd say Damian Lillard, but I don't think Kyrie's too far behind. And Brad, I do think, will go back to Washington. But he's the one that I'm... And most prepared for him to be playing elsewhere. I probably shouldn't say this, but I've been told that he's been telling different people different things. So maybe he's just fooling around and trying to keep everyone guessing. Mm. I mean, the Wizards are very content and think that he's coming back, but people in his world, people in his circle, let's say, I don't know what he said, but I've been told he'll say one thing to someone and another thing to somebody else. Hmm. So that's just kind of a head scratcher to me. (laughs) Smokescreen. Tis the season. Everyone's got some misdirection somewhere. It's just you don't know which direction is the actual direction and which one is the misdirection. Every year... Jake, there's always a team that's burning up the phone lines. They're buyers and they want everyone to know they're buyers. And they're calling everybody looking, what you got? What you got for me? Which team is that this year? Sacramento wants to get better. They want to get a piece. They're definitely projecting they want whatever. Portland, I guess, would be the easiest buyer answer because they've been linked to Ojigana Nobi and definitely heard DeAndre Ayton was on their wish list at one point. As I've written, I don't think that's very real now. Lou Dort's been a name that's thrown out there. Jeremy Grant's been a name they've been linked to back to the deadline. Other teams are really active. The Knicks have been talked about a ton, but they're more of a seller, I think. Indiana's been talked about as a big seller. Buyers, I think it's really just Portland and, and Sac, I would say. But to your point of talking a big game, now there's been all this word of late that Portland might be content just staying at seven. Mm, so, of course. <laughs> of course, that's coming up two days before the draft. Like you said, tis the season. On this program, we've done a lot of work, Jake, on the 85 draft, the frozen envelope. Mm. Was it an inside job? Was there a bent corner? All that good stuff. And as someone who's listened to this show, and thank you for listening and giving us love. My third eye is open. Is there, Jake, a particular favorite conspiracy theory of yours that 
you've loved as an NBA fan and as a reporter, your favorite conspiracy theory? We'll keep it draft related for the week. I am not someone who thinks the lottery is rigged. I do think that the frozen envelope was rigged being that for my book, which very heavily talks about the lottery and an era that changed the lottery. I watched that frozen envelope video over a hundred times. And it's very clear that one envelope bangs pretty hard against this thick metal rod. And I know that's going to be very explicit description there, but look, that's what happened. (laughs) David Stern grabs like three envelopes and magically decides to pick one, which clearly it looked like he was targeting all along. But I love that people are very content on saying that the Pelicans with the Anthony Davis draft because the team was being operated by Mm -hmm. the league at the time while they were trying to sell them. And the whole Chris Paul thing wrapped into it all, where that trade was nullified. There was the overall chicanery of Anthony Davis to Chris Paul while the league was running the team, trying to increase their profit margin potentially for this owner that they were helping do that. Again, conspiracy theories, but that is probably my favorite. Okay, so if I were to ask you, like, those are your favorite. You're amused by these. (laughs) Am I got that right? You're amused by these. These are funny stories. Yeah. What if I told you one of these lottery things was absolutely rigged? One of them is real. Everyone else is just wild theories that people just run with. But one of these is absolutely true. Which one would you pick as the one, maybe not your favorite, if you were told, from the grand Illuminati, someone with the big robe on and <laughs> candles and said, Jake Fisher, enter the circle. <laughs> one of these was actually, we did do it. We did pull all the strings. Which one would you pick? Wouldn't it have to be the grand Illuminati? It could just be like us over beers. You'd be like, hey, when I was in Phoenix, they told me <laughs> one lottery was rigged and I have to write that down or I'd have to figure it out. No, I think the one that I believe the most, getting LeBron to Cleveland would seem to be a total stroke of fate, right? The guy was, I mean, he's LeBron. He was the one guy who delivered the Sports Illustrated chosen one cover to such a degree. He's never even had a controversy off the court. He's just this golden child of this social media era. To bring him to Cleveland to uphold that whole entire state's economy. Yeah, that seems pretty convenient to me. Like Atlas holding up the state of Ohio on his broad shoulders. And came back and did it again. Yeah, after he got smoked out in the 2014 NBA Finals, right? During the heat index days. That's right. That's right. Shouts to the heat index. I was looking at the heat reaction grades from that night, man. Those were the days we had to file grades. We were grading Every player that played on the Heat and filed that as soon as the buzzer ended. Jake, I was thinking Ben Simmons going number one that year with the 76ers and the Colangelos taking over. Any sort of smoke there from your eyes? Draft night, draft lottery. Did that seem suspicious that they would get the number one pick? Yeah. And what's funny about the reason why we're even talking about this, I think, is because people in the league really do believe the lottery's rigged. Not everyone, but there are people who are saying, you know, my third eye's open. I think this happens. So it gets perpetuated by people like us because we're only taking credence from people who, in theory, would know more than us. And I remember writing about this in my book. Kevin Matumbo tweeted out, congrats to the Sixers (laughs) before the lottery happened. He told me that he was very bad at Twitter 
and the league sent him updates, copy and paste this, if your team wins, to all these legends. And that ultimately his son texted him like, Dad, it's lottery day. Like You got to fulfill your obligation to the league as an ambassador. And when he did do that, you got all, a lot of shit storm from the league office, obviously. He told me Adam Silver called him into the office and said they basically thought about firing him from his ambassador job because of ruining the integrity of the league. Oh, wow. He got to keep his job, but he was very scared about it. And there are people, to your point, who really do think that that was a reward for the Sixers pushing out Sam Hinkie's black eye <laughs> regime on the league. There definitely are people who think that. I don't know if I believe that to be true, but to your question, yeah, that is definitely something people speculate about. Jake, you've mentioned your book twice. What is that book called and where (laughs) could I possibly find it? It's called Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed League Forever. Appreciate that. You can find it anywhere books are sold. I think it's like 60% off now on Amazon. And every day I get another rating on it, which is nice. So if you buy it, I would love you to interact with the feedback metrics across platforms as well. That'd be great. I appreciate you, man. Go read his book. Go buy it wherever books are sold. Built to Lose. Jake Fisher from BR. You can find him on Twitter at Jake L. Fisher. Jake L-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. Appreciate you giving us the truth out there. It's a hard world, a lot of foggy information out there, but you keep it clear. I appreciate you. I'm just trying my best. Thank you guys for having me. What does that look like? You doing your own research? Are you doing studies yourself? Are you in the lab on a nightly basis? What are you doing? Do your own research. Do your own research. Do your own research. Doing your own research. Doing your own research. I'm not a scientist. I'm not here to tell everyone that this is it. For me, it's just um, just giving everyone a chance to do their own research and find their own knowledge. All right. This is a segment where I do my own wholesome research, like I said at the beginning, at the top. I mean, with the draft coming up. Mm-hmm. I have recreated some intelligence. What does that mean? Recreated. It was intelligence that was already created and then you went, took the steps to redo it? Yeah, updated it. I hit the refresh. I mean, that sounds to me like this document was shredded and Tom was taping it back together. Pasted it together. Yeah, does sound like that. Dumpster diving. Yeah, it was originally called the Draft Initiative, Draft-Related Analysis for Truth. Wow, look at that. The acronym skills. On Tom Haverstrow. Who commissioned this? Back in 2009 at ESPN, I was a research intern and created a database analyzing every draft pick since 1989, the more modern draft with the two rounds, where Purvis Ellison went number one. Not enough Purvises anymore. Purvi? Purvi. Coincidentally, Purvi. That's what I have when I'm doing my research. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. He's back, baby. <laughs> So I have a database here, I mean, of about 2,000 draft picks since 1989. And for every draft pick, I analyzed how much value that a player accumulated in his NBA career, tracked that information, how many all-stars, how many MVPs at each draft slot. And that allowed me to track how valuable each slot in the NBA is. 
in terms of like on-court production. And in this case, I used WinShares, which you can find on Basketball Reference, a great eye-opening resource there at basketballreference.com. And so I ran or re-ran a model to determine the likelihood of drafting an all-star and the expected value of each draft pick historically. So for example, with the number one pick, it's expected to yield a player who on average delivers five wins to your team annually throughout his career, right below all-star level. So, I mean, I also tracked each drafted player's experience going into the draft. So high school, freshman in college, sophomore, junior, senior, and whether he came into the league international play. So that way I could see what type of experience led to what kind of success in the league. And so I wanted to know because the NBA did away with the preps to pros in the 2006 draft, the year after Andrew Bynum. I wanted to know how high schoolers fared in the NBA compared to their older counterparts and to their international counterparts. And with the high school era beginning with KG in 1995, I put it at 1995 when he went fifth overall, mm-hmm. Amin Mays, which group outperformed their draft slot the most on average? So I'm talking high schoolers, preps to pros guys, freshmen, so one and dones, sophomores, two-year guys, juniors, three-year guys, four-year guys, seniors, or international. Which draft group from 95 to 2005 draft outperformed their draft slot the most on average on that one i am going to go with high schoolers just because i feel like that's the era where the high school players were catching fire so there's a lot of major success stories and i don't think we got too many flops i was gonna say the same thing Maze. the funny thing about them complaining about high schoolers was that the flops were the ones who flopped even before the draft. They never even got to be drafted. Whereas the ones who were drafted, it's funny, Tom, you mentioned the 2005 NBA draft, Andrew Bynum. I think about another high school player that went in that draft, Monte Ellis, who was a second round pick in that draft. I think of a third high school player that came out in that draft, Andre Blotch. So those are the names I think about. But they didn't flop. They had good NBA careers, right? And they were second round picks. I've got a fourth one for you from that draft. And this is all off the top of my head, ladies and gentlemen, because I am a bank when it comes to this kind of information. Amir Johnson was a high school player that was a second round pick, the 59th pick, if I'm not mistaken. He was a low second round pick. So, Tom, I'm agreeing with Anthony Mays. I'm saying the high schoolers have outperformed the draft slots more than any other subject group. Well done. You both have your third eye open. Can't close it. Yes. Wide the fuck open. The answer is high schoolers, and that's by far the right answer. Of the 39 draft picks in that era that came out of high school and straight to the NBA, everyone from LeBron to Andrew Bynum to Amir Johnson to Kendrick Perkins, Dwight Howard, Leon Smith, Corleone Young, Al Jefferson, the preps to pros players, returned an average annual value of 3.2 wins compared to their expected figure of 2.0 based on where they were drafted for a net difference of plus 1.2 wins above expected or 62% above expected value. Freshmen, one and dones, 23% above. Sophomores, 20% above. Juniors, 2% above. Seniors, a minus 15%. And then international players were just 10% above expected based on their draft slot. Really? That's pretty interesting for internationals because for every great international success story, I think of 
some of the big missteps there. The guys like Nicholas Skidishvili. Why is such a hard to pronounce name always the first one on the tip of everybody's tongues? It's really a remarkable thing that Skidishvili. Skidishvili. Well, there were also hits like Dirk. Manu, Tony Parker, Yao, Pau, Pau Yao, Peja, Barbosa, Nene, Boris Diao. But yeah, there are a bunch of swings and misses. Darko being the most famous one. Frederick Weiss. Does he count if he never makes it over? Yeah. I guess that performs less than expected, right? It's a big fat zero. Yeah. That's hurting your average, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> so high schoolers, in fact, there were 10 that went on to become all-stars, including LeBron, Dwight, Tyson Chandler, Kevin Garnett, Tracy McGrady, Amare, Andrew Bynum, Kobe Bryant, Jermaine O'Neal, Richard Lewis, also a second rounder. And three of them went on to become MVPs with Dwight Howard, Tracy McGrady, and Amari Stoudemire not winning MVPs, but being MVP candidates or at least perennial all-NBA players. So yeah, there were some busts, I mean, with Kwame and Darius Miles at number three and Jonathan Bender at number five. But more often than not, high schoolers met or exceeded their expected value based on draft slot. But that still prompted NBA owners to push for a age limit in the NBA going from high school and saying you have to be at least one year away from high school and 19 years old to be in the draft. And there was even talk in the 2014 offseason, Adam Silver in his first year, he went public and said one of our first priorities is raising the age limit from 19 to 20. But this bucks all the facts about performance. If high schoolers are the best value play in the draft, why do we want to keep them out of the draft? Here's my question. You gave us some data from 95 to 2005. Do you have some data for us from 2006 on? Because surely once they put in a rule limiting the number of these kids that can get into the NBA, surely what we saw were numbers that shifted and changed. Guys got older, and maybe their performance, according to their draft slot, had improved over time. Do you have any any knowledge? Do any research on that, Tommy? Actually, the younger players outperform their expectations. So you want to go after the Giannis's of the world, the 19-year-olds, the 18-year-olds in the draft. Regardless of what rules are in place, the younger guys tend to do better on average. And so it continues to show, the data shows, that going after younger players... Yeah, they might be more raw, but if you're talented enough to come into the draft and declare in the draft or dominate your college or dominate Australian league, like LaMelo Ball, Luka Doncic, super young, dominated at EuroLeague and still fell to number three, Mm -hmm. right? And so, I mean, still to this day, I think it doesn't always work out. Like Milwaukee went with Rashad Vaughn a couple years after going with Giannis and Rashad was not a very polished college basketball player, super young, and he washed out of the league in a couple years. But like, if you look at the aggregate, I mean, younger is better. And that's why you're seeing in this year's draft, not a lot of seniors, but I think If you are going to get a senior in the second half outside the lottery or in the second round, the Draymond Green thing, I think that's real. There's real value to be had with seniors. CJ McCollum, another senior. If you can find a talented senior that fell through the cracks in their first few years in the league, I think there is value. And I think it's almost swung the other direction is that, yes, you want to go young, but don't hate on a senior just because he's a four-year guy. Tom, it sounds to me like you're describing what a market inefficiency is. Yes. Now that everybody is caught on to your extraordinary research from 95 to 2005, we all know that younger players means better, which means that you're more likely to overlook 
someone who doesn't fit that criteria who could still be very valuable. But really, there's still a lot of noise in the draft. And I think the larger story is, why do we even do this? More recently, Markel Fultz happened, Dragon Bender happened. There's still swings and misses in the draft, especially at the top. I mean, I kind of feel like, is the draft itself outdated? Tom, you're asking questions that you know and I know very well the answers to. The reason the draft exists is because they want to keep the incompetent in charge. They want to give a life raft, a safety raft, if you will, to those teams that don't know what they're doing. I'm looking at you, New York Knicks. Y'all make me sick. I'm disgusted by the way you guys will operate as a staff record label and a mother-loving crew. Let me tell you what would save the NBA right now. I've often said that. Get rid of the draft. Whoa! Get rid of the draft. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Here's what you do. You make every college player, every draft eligible player, a free agent. You open a special draft free agency. It starts right now, draft week couple weeks before the actual free agents kick in. Now what you do is this. You say, hey, I mean, how do we help teams that are downtrodden get this cheap young talent to help them lift their organizations up? Because that's what the draft exists for, right? This is what you do. Instead of having draft picks, you have salary exceptions. You have salary exceptions. So the worst team in the league will have the largest salary exception And the best team in the league will have the smallest salary exception. And then you let these teams all go compete on an even playing field. So I know what you're thinking. But I mean, wouldn't every great player, wouldn't Paulo Bancaro and Chet Holmgren all go to like the Warriors and the Suns? No. Because if you're telling them, hey, you can come play on the Warriors and be fifth fiddle or whatever they got and make 700 grand a year, or you can go to Orlando and make $7 million a year, that's a very easy decision for those guys. They're going to be attracted to the places that can offer them the most money. Now, that doesn't mean they're automatically going to go there. If, as I look at my draft board here, and I see that the Kings had the seventh worst record in the league, but the Spurs had the ninth worst record in the league, as a prospect coming out, I might decide to take less money from the San Antonio Spurs than I would get from the Sacramento Kings. But I'm going to a markedly better situation. In my system, players are still rewarded for taking the money. But teams that are well-run have an opportunity to jump ahead in line of the lesser-run teams. And that's going to encourage owners to invest in front offices that know what they're doing and make the right decisions. The other thing you can do with these salary exceptions is you can split them up. Maybe I don't want to spend all $7 million on the Houston Rockets. Maybe I want to break it up into two and take two players further on down where the draft slots would be. There's all types of flexibility, and I believe it puts an onus on teams being properly run and having to convince these players that this is the right employment opportunity for them. You do that, you clean up a lot of the garbage, like tanking, and you get rid of a lot of the shenanigans and malarkey that we see right now. And I also think it's a better product. Like, draft night has been diluted because the picks are already out, the fans already know, and then the spectacle of figuring out who's going to draft who. Yeah. I feel like the NBA draft night 
needs an innovation. It needs a revolution because the TV product ain't nearly what it used to be. And so we're clutching to how we've always done it with the NBA draft. And if you think that this free agency scenario wouldn't be as good of a product, like, come on, I love the draft night. That's so much fun. You're telling me that Paolo Bancaro with a bunch of hats in front of him and he selects the hat like we do with high school players picking colleges. We don't think that's compelling television or compelling content. Particularly because we've got a set period of time where this can happen, but it's not one night like the draft. So we're extending this across two weeks, really, of this entire free agency frenzy of money that's earmarked for these players. And last but not least... We get rid of the most archaic of institutions. The idea that we say, hey, do you want to work here? Well, you got to line up like a cheap whore and let us select you out of a lineup. No, we don't do that anymore. We give the players the agency to decide where they want to pursue their careers. You still have the same rookie scale contract structure with two guaranteed years followed by two team option years there. It just opens the door for a better system for everybody, except the incompetent. They get screwed as they should. Wow, Tom, you see what just happened there? Yeah, I do. Segment got interrupted with an inconvenient truth. I was trying to figure out how to work in a, how was Ben Foster's collars and hustle <laughs> compared to the real Colangelo collars question, but didn't quite have the opening. It had to be a not so obvious reference to that, right? Like it had to be. Felt like it. Felt like it for sure. That's all I could think about. I watched that over the weekend with my girlfriend and she doesn't know too much about the league, but has enough of a reference point where she can ask really funny things. She just was so appalled at how stupid that guy was. Oh, yeah. And she was like, do people in the NBA actually act like this? I was like, sometimes they do. (laughs) Yeah, it felt like a Jim Buss, Brian Colangelo hybrid. Reform, Lamont. Reform. (laughs) Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.